Welcome to Biology for Bastards, teaching biology in the most profane way you've ever seen or heard. I'm your host, John Doty. Thanks for listening. This season, we're going through the AP Biology curriculum one chapter at a time. We are in chapter 25, the home stretch. That's not what it's called. It's actually called the history of life on Earth, but we're nearing the end. Only a couple more chapters after this. So we could spend a lot of time talking about this because Earth has been around for over four and a half billion years and life's been on it for most of that time. But we're not going to spend four billion years talking about shit. We're going to spend about 20 minutes and it's going to be a lot quicker. So when we talk about life and how it first appeared, there's a couple things that it had to have gone through in order to actually appear. So we had to have small organic molecules first. We had to have organic molecules. We just have to. Then those molecules have to combine to form the macromolecules, proteins, nucleic acids, shit like that. After that, they've got to be packaged into what we can call protocells, or the very first cell-like structures. And then we have to have some sort of self-replicating molecule. So that's what we had to have. And there's been a bunch of ideas on how all this shit happened in the first place. Um, my favorite one, or one of my favorite ones, is the RNA world hypothesis, which says that the first genetic material was probably RNA because of all the shit RNA can do. Um, it can catalyze reactions. Those are called ribozymes. It can help itself replicate. It helps DNA replicate. It's used in translation. So it does all this shit compared to DNA that just stores information. So if you want more on that, go back and listen to the DNA and RNA episodes where I just rant about how DNA is the Beyonce of genetics and all that shit. So going back to how the hell did we get those first organic molecules? Well, there's the idea of this primitive soup or primordial soup that was first proposed by O'Paran and Haldane back in the day, early 20th century, around there. And what it said was that the early atmosphere was full of water vapor, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, methane, ammonia, all this shit. But everything was very simple. And through chemical reactions that were powered by lightning strikes and ultraviolet radiation, this kind of made conditions favorable for the synthesis of these organic compounds. And that's what the primordial soup is. All this shit kind of getting created, getting concentrated in the stew. And this was tested by Miller and Urey in the Miller-Urey experiment. It's one of my favorite experiments. It's from 1954, if I remember off the top of my head. Somewhere right around there in the 50s. University of Chicago. And what they did is they recreated early Earth conditions in the lab. So they had a flask full of sterilized water that they would boil to simulate evaporation. In the atmosphere, in this sealed system, they had all the gases that we just mentioned pretty much. Water vapor, methane, ammonia, hydrogen, carbon dioxide. And they had these electrodes set up to simulate lightning strikes. 
and they let this whole apparatus run um, where they would evaporate the water, it would react with the gases through the electrodes, it would condense down back into the ocean, the simulated ocean that is, not the actual ocean, but you probably figured that the fuck out. Um, so they let this run for a week and they produce the amino acids. So out of, you know, organically nothing, they didn't have any organic molecules, they created amino acids, which is kind of a big fucking deal. They did it in a week. Okay, Earth had billions of years. Or I should say hundreds of millions from when Earth, you know, was first formed and the first evidence of life has been found. We're talking hundreds of millions of years. But that's step one. That's how we get the organic molecules, get the macromolecules. And then lipids on their own will form these proteinoid microspheres where they will segregate into these bubbles. Just It's just what they do. They're hydrophobic. They want to block out the water, so they make these bubbles. And some hypotheses out there say these protocells, these little bubbles, these lipid membranes, could concentrate shit within this primordial soup and give it the conditions necessary for it to actually spark life. It could store energy by having concentration differences across the membrane. All this shit that potentially gives it the opportunity for life to originate. Which I know that makes it sound super simple, but it's super fucking hard. We haven't been able to recreate the whole, like, triggering of life. That would be pretty fucking cool. Um, but haven't done that yet. Um, what we have done is we've been able to piece together the history of life using fossils. See how I did that segue? That was pretty fucking sweet. Um, so we know that life began, or we have evidence for the first forms of life from about 3.8 billion years ago. So, you know, about eight, hundred million years after the earth formed we had life and we find all these fossils in sedimentary rock because we have mineralized structures and we've been able to basically connect the dots between all this shit um we found fossilized stromatolites that's kind of the earliest life forms we have all the way up to dinosaurs and you know ancient mammals, all this shit. Um, now, the fossil record, despite being really fucking cool, which apparently is the phrase, I'm just of the day, so whatever. Despite being really cool, it's very incomplete because in order to be a fossil, you gotta like hit the lottery. You've gotta die in the right place at the right time in the right conditions. And then somebody's gotta find your ass. So... Odds are there are entire species of organisms that have lived and gone extinct and we will never know about them because either they didn't become fossils or those fossils will never be discovered, which is kind of crazy to think about. But when we do find fossils, we can figure out how old they are um, using two different methods. We can use relative dating and radiometric dating. And what relative dating is, that's just kind of putting it in this sequence based on, you know, this layer of Earth is older than that layer, younger than that layer, kind of giving us a sequence 
of ages. Radiometric dating, on the other hand, gives us an actual age, and it's done by measuring the decay of radioactive isotopes that exist in organisms at a fairly constant rate throughout life. And then once they die, they stop taking in the radioactive isotope and it slowly starts to decay. And you can measure the ratio of the radioactive isotope to its daughter nucleus to get you an age. And you do that by measuring the half-life of whatever radioactive isotope you're using. And in case you don't know what a half-life is, it's how long it takes for half of the radioactive atoms in a sample to decay. So, um, what is it, carbon-14, radiocarbon dating, it has a half-life of 5,730 years. So you do this math of how much carbon-14 versus how much nitrogen-14, which is his daughter nucleus, do that, and you can figure out, well, it's been three half-lives, so that's something like 16,000 years or some shit. Okay, do the math on your own if you want. I don't care. But that's how you use half-life to actually get an age, by measuring that ratio and doing a little bit of math based on how quickly that radioactive isotope decays. And doing all this stuff, people have found all these changes over time. It led to the development of the geologic time scale. So we have these different divisions of time. Eon is the biggest. Then we have era. Then we have period. Then we have this word that I've heard pronounced two ways, and they're very different. I don't know the right way. I think epoch, but I've heard some people say epic, but epoch is what I hear more often. So that's the shortest one. And then you've got like ages within that. So like the Bronze Age, Stone Age, all that shit. So right now we're in the Phanerozoic Eon of the Cenozoic Era, the Quaternary Period. And in my notes, it has the Holocene Epoch, but they've changed that to the Anthropocene, you know, after all this shit that people have done. So we might be in a new Epoch being the Anthropocene, which is just fun to say. Say, Anthropocene. Anthropocene. Okay, I'm done with that. So, anytime you talk about the geologic time scale and you've got all these different periods, um, you know, the Permian, the um, Cambrian, no, that's the wrong order. Cambrian, the Ordovician, the Silurian, the Devonian, the Carboniferous, the Permian, the Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, Paleogene, Neogene, and Quaternary. I think that's all of them in order, going back about 500 and something million years all the way to present day. But what those different periods represent are these unique changes or these drastic changes in the history of life. Okay, and then, um, so there's been some big-ass changes over time, you know, the first cells, that's kind of a big deal. Then oxygen accumulating, that happened long, long time ago. Um, all this shit. We have the endosymbiont or endosymbiotic theory. 
think we've talked about that when we talked about mitochondria and chloroplasts, just saying that they were once free living prokaryotes that then lived inside larger cells. And there's a shit ton of evidence backing it up. That was, if I remember correctly, Lynn Margulis from Boston University was one of the first people to find that out or to really get some good concrete evidence that, you know, mitochondria and the chloroplasts, they replicate the same way that bacteria or that prokaryotes replicate. Um, They have DNA similar to prokaryotes. They have their own ribosomes. They have enzymes that resemble prokaryotic enzymes. They've got the double membrane. So everything kind of points in this direction that they were once free-living organisms that then teamed up with a larger cell to become the organelles that we know them today. So we got other stuff going on. We've got supercontinents. Everybody knows about Pangaea. It's not the only time all the continents together were together. There's like Gondwana, something like that. Rodinia. A um, couple times throughout the history of Earth, we've had supercontinents. Um, Pangaea is the one from about 250 million years ago. It's the one where, you know, the last time they were together. And it's the way that we can see all the, uh, how the continents fit together like puzzle pieces. That South America fits right into that little nook in Africa. And that little nook in Africa, or the little jabby thing out in northern, northwestern Africa kind of fits in to North America and all this shit. Um, it explains fossils being found on the west coast of Africa, the east coast of South America, saying that they were once, you know, up against each other. So there you go. There's some uh, continental drift shit for you. Now, mass extinctions. Dope as shit. Um, there's been a bunch of them. We're currently in the sixth one. There's a lot of shit dying. And we're going to get into that in a couple chapters but it's uh, fucked up. It is not good. Um, But there's been mass extinctions. Like I said, we're in our sixth one, so there's been five others. And what happens with these mass extinctions is it opens the door for the diversification of life. So when you have this mass extinction, the survivors, they are like golden. They just wiped out all this shit, and now they are free to take advantage of all these resources that are now there and all these niches that are left open. So there's all sorts of adaptive radiation, all sorts of spreading out and organisms feeling new, um, new roles, new niches that they weren't able to experience before. So, um, we've had some really big events going on. I listed all the periods, Uh, We could go through each period and kind of talk about what was the dominant organism or type of organisms during there. Um, But we don't have to. You don't need to really know that. There are a couple key moments, though, that are super important. So there's Precambrian time. I said when I was going through Cambrian, that was about 500 and something, 540-ish, I think, million years ago. Everything before that was known as Precambrian time. And that's when you had very simple organisms. They may have been multicell. They were multicellular, um, but they weren't anything fancy. We're talking like stromatolites. Uh, We did have photosynthesis and the 
appearance of eukaryotes during this time. So that's kind of a big fucking deal. But all of a sudden, during the Cambrian, which is part of the Paleozoic era, the first eight, first period of the Paleozoic era, um, lots of shit happened. We had plants on land, we had armor, we had teeth, we had claws, we had all this shit happening all at once. That's why it's called the Cambrian Explosion. All of a sudden, life got super complicated in a really short amount of time. But at the end of the Paleozoic era, we had the Permian period, again, the Permian extinction, which is the greatest die-off that we've ever known, where like 96% of species that existed just kick the fucking bucket, gone. So huge die-off, um, bunch of hypotheses about how that happened. Um, some include like this giant fire the size of Russia that burned for thousands of years and it polluted everything and temperatures change and blah, 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 all that fun shit. Okay, that led us to the Mesozoic era, which is the dinosaur times. That's when Pangaea happened. That's where we had um, all the dinosaurs, the emergence of birds, all that shit. Um, that ended with the Cretaceous extinction when the asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula off the coast of Mexico, and it led us to the Cenozoic era, which is the age of mammals, the age of, and then eventually primates. But all of them ended with this major extinction event and then started with a shit ton of adaptive radiation, a shit ton of speciation. So when we look at this, one field of study that's very interesting when you're looking at how this diversification happens and all the results of it is the field of EVO-DEVO, which stands for Evolutionary or Evolution and Developmental Biology. So EVO-DEVO. So you are looking at changes in DNA or the regulation of developmental genes like the Hox genes, um, which are your like head, shoulders, knees, and toes genes. That's what I think of them. They determine location and organization of the body. Um, they turn on a shit ton of genes. So you can have um, minor changes in these genes, but because they are affecting so much shit down the line, you can have some drastic, drastic um, changes in body plans. Um, and some of those drastic changes might originally serve one purpose, but then kind of get reappropriated for something else. And when that happens... Those adaptations are no longer called adaptations. They're called exaptations. Those are structures that evolve um, for one reason, but then become, you know, co-opted or have a second use that then becomes, you know, the better, quote-unquote, better use of that structure. So classic example of an exaptation are feathers on birds. It's believed they originally evolved to help with thermoregulation, to help with body temperature and everything. But obviously we know that they got co-opted for flight. And with that, we are at like 19 minutes and 40 seconds. I told you we were going to talk for about 20 minutes. So that brings us to the end. Hope you enjoyed that one. Um, the usual business. Follow us on Twitter, um, Facebook, Instagram. We're at bio for bastards on all of those um, check out our website where you can find a copy of the powerpoint that all this is based on it's biologyforbastards.com don't forget to 
go to Apple Podcasts and rate us, review us, leave a little message, say hi, all that stuff. Say hi if you follow us on the social media too. That's fun. Um, keep telling everybody you know. We've only got six more episodes after this for season one. There's definitely a season two, so I am going to be back. I just warning everybody now. Can't get rid of me. Um, but until... Well, no, I forgot to credit the music. Oh shit, that would have been bad. Our intro and outro music is the song Feeling Good by Purple Planet Music. I have been your host, John Doty. This has been Biology for Bastards. And until next time, thanks for listening. So you may have just heard an ad, but I can't end with an ad. So just wanted to say, follow us on Twitter at Bio4Bastards. Um, our intro and outro music is Feeling Good by Purple Planet Music. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, tell everybody you know about it. And again, thanks for listening.